0: Thank you for
1: joining us today.
0: We're glad you're joining us so that we can tell another case. We wouldn't be here without you. That is for sure.
1: And Melissa
0: has prepared another case for us today that I'm excited to hear. To start our case off today, I have to ask you, have you ever met a couple that just seemed to have the best relationship? Yes, I know two couples like that. The ones that you're just a little bit envious of because their worlds just seem to revolve around one another?
1: Yeah, they seem to totally
0: have this marriage thing figured out. That's the kind of relationship that Heidi and Nicholas Furcus had. And that's who we're going to talk about today. Or at least that's what everyone thought their
1: relationship was like. So what people were seeing was not necessarily what was happening behind closed doors.
0: I'm not sure if that's a true statement. Okay. Because I think what was happening behind closed doors, it might have been this great relationship, but it was one built on many, many secrets. Oh. Well, you have me very intrigued then. They do have an interesting relationship. Hmm. So maybe
1: not one that you would be envious of, though. Obviously, if we're talking about them today.
0: That's right. Not when you learn all the facts. Heidi and Nicholas met at a youth group at the Calvary Church in Roseville, Minnesota, just a little over 10 minutes outside of St. Paul, the state capital. Both of their families attended the same church, and they held a lot of the same values and interests. Both enjoyed working with the youth and exploring the great outdoors. Heidi Marie, born on December 14th, 1984, was John and Linda Erickson's youngest child and their only girl. She was raised to be the apple of her parents' eye and was adored by her two older brothers. The family was close-knit and enjoyed spending time with each other. There are no reports of abuse or anything sinister going on in their family. Heidi grew up playing sports and enjoying the friendship of many people. She was the kind of girl that lit up a room with her smile when she walked in it. People were just naturally drawn to her vibrant and welcoming personality, and they were hooked by her goofy humor and creative nature. She sounds amazing. She did sound amazing. After Heidi finished high school, that's when Heidi and Nick started to date. Heidi was smitten with Nick. Nicholas James, too, had been born in a good home on February 25th, 1983. His parents, Stephen and Julie Ferkus, upheld traditional values and taught Nick, along with his siblings, to care for those in need and about the importance of charity. Like Heidi's parents, Nick's were upstanding citizens serving on boards for local charities and running a family business with extended family members. They were hard workers and they wanted to provide everything for their children that they could. Nick was regarded by his friends as warm and caring and had a love for life and especially for Heidi. To everyone around the couple, it was clear that Nick loved Heidi. He doted on her. He was openly loving towards her in public and sang her praises to anybody that would listen. So it sounds good so far. It does sound really good. So when the couple announced that they were engaged, no one was surprised. Everyone was excited and supportive of the young couple that were married in 2005 when Nick was 22 and Heidi was 20. By 2007, the young couple had started putting down their own roots. They purchased their first home that year for just a little over 200000 at 1794 West Minnehaha Avenue in St. Paul. It was this cute little turn-of-the-century story-and-a-half little home with three bedrooms and two bathrooms. I looked it up on the real estate website, and super, super cute. Aww. It was just over 1,500 square feet, complete with an enclosed front porch and a detached garage. While finances were a little tricky to purchase their home and they had to take out two mortgages to secure the house, they were both happy to put in the work to make their dreams come true. Nicholas worked for his parents' business at Crew 2 Solutions, a company that did a lot of subcontracting work for a big box department store, installing flooring and water heaters and doors. And they also had this little side business of carpet cleaning and rentals. Heidi was also working. At first, she worked for a sign company, but when work slowed, she was able to get an administrative role at the financial institution of Securian in downtown St. Paul. The company handled insurance, investments, and retirement funds. Heidi's dad also worked at the company as an account manager. Both Heidi and Nick had loving relationships with their parents, and their parents wanted to see them succeed. So there are several instances I think you can see throughout their lives that they help their children along. That's nice when parents can. Mm Mm-hmm. As a newly married couple, Nick and Heidi made friends with other evangelical couples at their church. Heidi and three other women, along with their husbands, formed a tight-knit group that were referred to as The Core. So was this kind of like a clique then? I don't think it was unwelcoming, but they were very close friends that did everything together. Okay. The friends were always doing things like having barbecues and going over to one another's houses, and they would describe each other as family. Okay. All held similar views about marriage and life, and often talked about how they believed it was God's order for a man to lead his family and be the leader of the household, and that included the finances. Unfortunately, for the young couple, hard work was no match for the spending habits. By 2008, their mortgage was no longer being paid as mounting credit card debt and keeping up with the Joneses took its toll. Oh, that is a slippery slope, especially so early in a marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Money can do so much damage to a relationship, and it's not even a living thing. It's true, but it does create a lot of stress, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. While receiving overdue notice after overdue notice, the pair continued to spend. Nick continued to eat out and buy the latest gadgets and camping gear, and Heidi continued to redecorate their new home. She repainted, she put in closet organizers, and had new carpet installed on their stairs. What?! Each acted like they were completely oblivious to the fact that their financial situation was not a good one. Oh, well, that's stressing me out just hearing about it. Mm-hmm.
1: When you're getting yourself in that kind of situation, you should be cutting things out, not adding things in. I can't even imagine not being able to pay my mortgage and thinking, hey, let's get the carpet replaced.
0: Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense at all.
1: But I guess they wouldn't be in that situation if they were making wise financial decisions to begin with. That's right.
0: And so this seemed to be kind of an ongoing thing for them. Right. In April of 2009, Nick signed the foreclosure paperwork and eviction proceedings began. Oh. Their fairy tale dream was coming crashing down, but their financial woes wouldn't be the worst thing that the couple had to face in the coming year. On Saturday, September 24th, 2010 was just like any other Saturday for the couple. Nick woke up and went out to purchase breakfast while Heidi slept in. When he returned, the couple enjoyed breakfast in bed together, and then they made plans for the rest of the day. Nick had plans to go out to a camping supply store in Rosehill and pick up a new sleeping bag. And then Heidi had plans to meet with a friend from work and head out for some Saturday afternoon shopping at the Mall of America.
1: So they're still shopping. They're still spending money like crazy.
0: Yeah, they continue to spend money like crazy. Nick got home from his errands first and enjoyed a leisurely Saturday reading and napping. Heidi returned from her day out around 6.30pm and they ordered in dinner, enjoyed a glass of wine together, while watching the newly released movie Avatar. After the movie, Heidi went to bed and Nick stayed up to watch the hockey game until shortly after midnight. That's how the couple would spend their last day together. Ooh. At 6am on Sunday, April 25th, Nick woke to hearing somebody trying to enter their house. He had just gotten up to take a drink from the faucet and hadn't really settled back into a deep sleep when he thought he heard something. At first, he assumed the noise he had heard was their back screen door swinging. It had a tendency to come open in the wind, but as he strained to hear it, he started to isolate the noise actually at the front of the house. The noise became more distinct and he recognized it as someone wiggling the front doorknob. Ooh. He quickly jumped out of bed and grabbed his Russian model 20-gauge shotgun that he used for grouse hunting. It was stored in the couple's bedroom closet. He grabbed it in his left hand, loading it with two shells that he kept on top of the cabinet in the closet. He grabbed his pair of jeans that had his wallet in it in his right hand and woke Heidi, telling her that there was an intruder and that they should get out of the house. He tells her quickly to put on her shoes and head downstairs to the garage. Sounds terrifying. Heidi starts to head down the stairs and Nick is right behind her. In their house.
1: He let her go first?
0: He did let her go first. (laughs) What? Yeah.
1: You go, honey. I got you covered with the shotgun. That's odd. Especially since they have such traditional viewpoints on what a male and female role should be. If he's this provider and protector, you think he would want to go
0: first? Well, especially since he's the one carrying the weapon. Right. And if you have a weapon, you're at the top of the stairs, somebody's trying to get into your house, why don't you stay at the top of the stairs? Yeah, call the police. Yeah. Do your little right. with the gun and the guy takes off, no? Right.
1: Barricade yourself in your room. Go out the window. Right. Holler for help. Heidi starts to... <laughs> it's okay, honey. Go first. <laughs> I'm right behind
0: you. Christy's stuck on this part. <laughs> it does seem a little unorthodoxed.
1: I mean, it's totally fine. I would be like, okay, I could go down the stairs first. That's fine. But just because of how you described their roles that they both believed in, that's why it seems funny. And he's the one holding the weapon.
0: Exactly. That's the thing that gets me. If you're holding the weapon, you go first. Yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? Shoot around her if you actually have to shoot somebody? Right. That doesn't make any sense. You're just using her as a shield. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's how they headed down the stairs. Heidi starts to head down the stairs and Nick is right behind her. In their house, the stairs lead right to the front door entrance, which is actually the second door into the house because of the enclosed porch. Okay. At the entrance to the left of the door, as you enter, there is an entrance table and the door swings away from the entrance table towards the stairs. Can you envision that? Yep. To the left side of the stairs is the living room and further down that hallway is the kitchen, which has the back door that will lead them to their detached garage. As Heidi comes down the stairs, she is dialing 911 on her cell phone. Her first two attempts did not go through. The St. Paul Police Department records them as two hang-up calls in less than 30 seconds. On her third attempt, when it connects at 632.12, she tells the dispatcher that, quote, someone's trying to break into my home. So they have this down to a second? Yes. Things are going to happen very quickly after this. Okay. So today I was thinking we could do something a little bit different, and I'm going to play you the 911 calls, (gasps) and I want to see what you're going to think. Oh, we've
1: never done that when recording before.
0: (laughs) No. Maybe we'll put the links for the 911 calls and for the later interview that I'm going to show Christy in our links on social media, so you get to see them too.
1: So we'll pause for a quick second, but for you, it'll seem like we barely left. (laughs) Okay. Ooh, that was very harrowing to listen
0: to. You can tell she's terrified. She's terrified, but she's not frantic. Like No. She's answering. She's terrified, and you can tell she's moving. Right. Heidi is breathing heavily, definitely stressed and terrified, but on the phone call, it sounds like she's keeping it together. She grabs her wallet from the entrance table and continues down the hallway towards the back kitchen while giving the dispatcher her address. As the dispatcher asks her to confirm the direction of her street, there is what sounds like a gunshot followed by a single scream of no and the line goes dead. The whole call only lasted 38 seconds. The 911 dispatcher immediately tries to call back, but both attempts go to voicemail. At 633.46, Nick places a call to 911 on Heidi's phone, just 22 seconds later. He is near hysterics as he tells the dispatcher that someone has broken into their home and shot both him and his wife. His anguish is palpable as he tries to relay that Heidi, his wife of four and a half years, is dead and begs them to hurry to come and help. Listening to those 911 calls
1: totally brings it to life. Mm -hmm. And I do have to say, what an amazing 911 dispatcher.
0: Crazy, right? With all of the things that they have to do, calling fire and calling police, all different phone calls that they have to make while trying to still get the information themselves and keeping somebody calm is incredible yeah hats off to dispatchers because that is a hard job nick stays on the phone with the dispatcher until the police arrive just a little over six minutes later so they were there pretty quick Mm -hmm. when the dispatcher asks if the intruder is still there he says no and when she asks about weapons he tells her that his gun is lying on the floor in the foyer she asks him did you shoot back and nick says no when police enter they can smell the gunpowder in the air and they find Nick cradling Heidi in a pool of his and her blood. Nick is rushed to the hospital because he has also been shot, and Heidi is pronounced dead at the scene. All the police could gather from this hysterical man at the scene was that somebody had broken into their house just as they had come down the stairs while Heidi was calling 911. That the couple was passing the front door to get to the garage when the front door swung open and one or two people entered the house. When he turned around, one of the intruders was able to take the shotgun from him and shoot him and his wife. The only thing that Nick could identify before he left for the hospital about the intruder was that he thought they were wearing a hoodie. And so he's saying there's two. Well, he wasn't sure because he said he couldn't see past the front door. He thought maybe there was somebody on the porch or the vestibule. As police investigate the scene, they find tool marks by the lock on the lower doorknob and no marks around the deadbolt lock that is just above it. Nick's shotgun lies at the foot of the entrance table by the door on the floor. And a short distance away, there is a pair of jeans on the floor as well. The entrance table just inside the door has several items on it, including a beer bottle, a water bottle, and a receipt. None of these items appear disturbed. Police become suspicious almost immediately. There was no apparent signs of this great big struggle that had happened just at the front door or that the door had busted open. There's also shotgun pellets at the bottom of the door on the hinge side. The door was found opened only a crack.
1: Oh, that is very suspicious. And you would think if you're fighting over a loaded gun that those shots probably would have accidentally gone off during the struggle. Mm hmm not left nicely in the chamber for the burglar to be
0: able to then get into clean shots. Exactly. So Heidi is found lying on her back on the cold kitchen floor, with her feet pointing towards the front door, which is less than 15 feet away. nod autopsy would later show that she was shot in the back on a right-to-left trajectory. When the shotgun pellets entered her body, they perforated her spinal column, left ribs, left lung, and anterior ribs. Nick was taken to the hospital to be treated for the gunshot wound that he received. A through-and-through in his upper left thigh, the bullet had miraculously passed through only soft tissue. With no significant bleeding, Nick was released from hospital three hours later and driven to the police station for questioning. Oh, that is a very minor injury then. Compared to Heidi's, it is. The interview lasts almost three hours. He tells the police about his and Heidi's day, before, and how they had watched a movie. He said that they usually locked the deadbolt but he couldn't recall in particular if he had done it the night before he could however now remember more about the intruder he now told the police that it was a black man that entered his home and that he was roughly the size of nick's twin brother about six one or six two in a dark hooded sweatshirt with a hood drawn tight around his face and he was wearing gloves he told police that when the man had entered he had grabbed nick's gun And while they wrestled over it, that's when the two shots were fired. What? And just got a clean shot right in the center of her back. Heidi was hit first, and he said he was hit second as he battled for his life. When the gun went off the second time, that's when the intruder ran back through the front door in the early morning sun, and Nick went over to Heidi and rolled over her limp body and called 911. The police questioned Nick about his and Heidi's relationship. Are there any affairs? Do they have any enemies? any deep dark secrets nick tells the officer that heidi and he have been keeping a secret from everyone else what their finances oh yeah nick tells the police that because of the feelings of shame and embarrassment heidi and he had decided to keep the fact that they were sinking financially and about to be evicted the very next day a secret from all of their friends and family but he lays it all out on the line for the police the next day, the next day, they were about to be evicted. The debt they were under was crushing them. He was very forthcoming about their struggles and the feelings of shame about it. When asked why the house didn't look like much was packed, Nick told the officer that there were some boxes in the basement and totes that they had started on, but to keep up appearances, they were going to be packing and moving at the last minute. Well, super
1: last minute, because honestly, if you know you're moving the next day, you're not watching a movie and going shopping with your friends and having this leisurely day of napping and
0: reading your book. Right, but he just says that they were just putting it off and they had arranged to store some stuff in the garage of the house until they found somewhere else to put it. And so they weren't really that panicked because they were just moving stuff out of the house and into the garage.
1: Still, anybody who's had to move knows That's not even just an easy thing. No, not at all.
0: Throughout most of the interview, Nick appears pretty emotional with only brief periods of his voice catching when he's talking about Heidi. Mostly, he spends his time playing with his water bottle during the questioning. After 90 minutes of questioning, he asks about Heidi. Heidi hadn't been declared dead when he had been taken to the hospital, and nobody has said much to him since. After some stalling, the interrogating officer does tell him that Heidi is dead. To which he responds, I figured. Okay. When the detectives ask the question, did you have anything to do with the murder? Nick says, no, absolutely not. Can I show you the video of him? Yes. Whoa. The whole interview seems very cold until it's over. When the interview ends, the officer leaves and Nick's family are able to see him for the first time. He breaks down and sobs into his mother's arms. He just falls completely apart. Right. The interview is very confusing to watch. He goes from appearing nonchalant to heartbreaking sobs by the end of it. He is incredibly detailed about almost everything and has an explanation for everything.
1: Well, I can even just see from the little bit that you showed me how at the beginning, it didn't even seem like he was talking about a murder. He was just showing him where his hands were on the gun. Just like I'm showing you how to use a fishing rod. Something just so nonchalantly to then a little bit of voice cracking when he's talking about Heidi, and then full-on breaking down when his
0: mom comes into the room and embraces him. Mm -hmm. Almost like he's in a disassociated state.
1: Like, I can talk
0: about it, but it has to be matter-of-fact, and this is the only way that it can be. Right. The interview was about as confusing as the investigation was for the police. As police dig into the couple's finances... They find out that they hadn't paid their $1,500 mortgage payment in over 22 months. Oh, 22 months? How do you get to live in a house for 22 months without paying your mortgage? They'd only lived in it three years. They bought it in 2007, and now it's only 2010. So they only paid like a year out of that. Mm-hmm. Nick had been served foreclosure documents on April 20th in 2009, the previous year, but he had been stalling the eviction since then any way he knew how. The law firm, handling the foreclosure, had even offered money to vacate, and it was refused. Oh, they're like, here, we'll actually pay you to get out of the house. Mm-hmm. It was like, if you're out by this date, you can have 2400 but if you can't make that date, you can have a little bit lower of an amount. Eventually, the law firm, though, set the lockout date to be April 9th, 2010. This was after the house had been sold at a sheriff's auction on the 4th of the same month. So they didn't even own their house anymore it had already been auctioned off. Nick was able to get another grace period granted by telling the firm that his grandmother was on her deathbed and that he needed a couple of more weeks. The firm reluctantly agreed to move the date to Monday, April 26th. That would be the last extension. The sheriff would be coming on Monday to escort them off of the property. In addition to their mortgage trouble, the couple had one account that was overdrawn by $400.00, and another closed by the bank with an additional 1700 still owed to the bank. They had cancelled all of their house and car insurance because they were unable to make payments, and they had over $17,000 on a department store credit card, the camping goods store.
1: That is a lot of camping gear, and those department store credit cards have such high interest.
0: Yeah, that's just not your normal credit card. No. Despite all these financial woes... The two had gone on vacation to Hawaii on February 12th, 2010 for five days. What? Spending over $3,000. It was actually the same day that the eviction proceedings were filed against them. Wow. Mm -hmm. It was very clear that they were in a financial mess. And how is this not
1: stressful? Like, I don't know how I could be in that much debt and just be like, oh, let's go to Hawaii. Let's watch a movie. Relax. A movie I can get because that's not going (laughs) to cost me $3,000 more dollars. A movie's a little escape, just like how we like to listen to true crime. (laughs) I guess. But that's really unbelievable, though, that they would go on this big holiday. Probably because they're like, oh, we're so stressed
0: over our finances. We need a little break. We need an escape, maybe. Yeah. But it seems like a very clear motive to the police about why Nick might want to kill his wife. That's what they thought.
1: Yeah. How soon after did he try to collect an insurance claim?
0: But he probably didn't pay that premium either. Heidi had only a small $28,000 policy, and Nick signed that over to her parents. After her death? Mm-hmm. What? He didn't profit anything from her death. I'm so shocked. He wasn't after money. Anyone that police interviewed about the couple said that they had no problems. They were always devoted and loving to each other. Neither had any past criminal history, and there had been no reports of domestic disturbances. As the police dug into the case, they just became more and more perplexed. So they clearly are like, we think the husband did it, but there's no motive. They had this absolutely loving relationship.
1: Yeah. And you would think lining everything up, it would be like, oh, yeah, definitely for insurance. It had to be to get out of the debt. But for him to not take that $28,000,
0: that would throw you off of that motive trail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would be confused, too. To make things even more confusing... The evidence at the scene all seemed to be pointing to him. Police couldn't find any sign of an intruder. They had canine officers at the scene that day, and they were unable to pick up any foreign scent in or leading away from the home, Mm. which is highly unusual if someone had been just in a struggle and sweating profusely. Yeah. Police also canvassed the neighborhood, and while a few neighbors had heard the two quick loud sounds that could have been the gunshots, and they had heard screaming, No one reported seeing anyone running from or even around the Furcus' home. The only DNA and fingerprints on the gun were Nicks. But he had already admitted that he was holding it, and even devastatingly admitted that he might have been the one that pulled the trigger during the struggle.
1: But he said the assailant was wearing
0: gloves, right? Yeah, he did say that the assailant was wearing gloves. A few days after the murder, police tried to recreate the jingling handle on the front door to see if Nick could have heard somebody fussing with the front door. They tried to do this because in his interview, Nick said that the year previous, the police had mistakenly banged on their door looking for someone else, and neither he or Heidi had been able to hear anything from their bedroom where they were sleeping. It was after this that the two had come up with this safety plan to go to the garage if anybody ever broke into their house. On the police recording, nothing can be heard from the bedroom. And actually, this didn't surprise me, because how many times do we hear stuff that the recording does not pick up? That's true. But nothing in this investigation seemed to add up for the police. The crime scene didn't match the story, but neither did the motive that they had come up with. With everyone on the table as a suspect, especially Nick, Nick lawyered up and refused to answer any more of the police's questions under the direction of his lawyer. But he still wanted to help out with the investigation, he even went as far as hiring his own sketch artist to help create an image of the intruder. The police had offered to do this for him, but Nick, under the direction of his lawyer, refused because he felt that it was just another ruse to get Nick to come in and ask him questions. Nick sat down with an artist who created an image of a black man in his late 30s wearing a hoodie, based on his recollection of that day. Nancy Mulner, the artist, would listen to how Nick described the face, then she would draw. When she had completed a feature, she would ask Nick if it appeared accurate. If not, she would make the necessary changes and then go through the process again, ask him, does this look more like it? And he would confirm or say, no, keep working on it. Those sketch artists are way talented. It is such an amazing talent to take somebody's image from their head and actually put it on paper. Like, it's not like something that you're imagining in your head. Right. It's fascinating. And it's incredible just how accurate they really can be. Mm -hmm. When it was completed, they took the drawing to the police, and the police immediately released the image to the media. There were no hits at first. As the investigation stalled out, Heidi's family and loved ones began going on with their lives without her. The core group of friends came and helped Nick pack up Heidi's things at the house and offered their support to their grieving friend. So did he not have to leave the house? They let him stay? They let him pack everything up. He did have to leave, but... They gave him a little bit more of a grace period. Mm -hmm. Nick's family became super protective of him because of all the negative attention from the media and the speculation that he was somehow involved. Everyone rallied around the grieving widower. At Heidi's funeral, he spoke and described his grief as homesickness to her family and friends. In July 2010, Nick sent a message to the Corps saying he was going to be meeting with Heidi's parents and asked them to pray for him. They were going to go over the details about what happened and Nick was going to answer any of the questions they had. It seems that after Heidi's death there was a little bit of tension between him and his in-laws because the police suspected him. Nick said he wanted to continue being a part of the Erickson family. He desperately needed them to know that all he had wanted to ever do was protect Heidi and provide them with a beautiful life. Nick felt that he had failed at this. In August, he again asked his friends for their prayers as he prepared for a meeting with his legal team. He texted the group, quote, They have worked very hard these past months to help me build a legal defense in response to the queries of the thinly veiled accusations of the St. Paul police. Introspectively, he asked the group, quote, Does tomorrow signify the end of our pursuit in truth and justice in regards to Heidi's killer? Does my case being tucked away in a file cabinet drawer stop any progress to that end? How can I, slash we, live with the knowledge that justice may never happen? Do we just have to accept it? Even though he did ask the question, it seems like after this meeting, this is exactly what Nick focused his attention on, was moving on, and just accepting it. Three months after Heidi's death, he started dating a new woman named Rachel Watson. What? Three months? Three months. Rachel was one of Heidi's best friend's sisters. What? What? Rachel had come to stay with her sister after getting out of an abusive relationship. They didn't know each other before. Because Nick was spending so much time with the core group, the two met and they were drawn to each other because they had each experienced significant trauma. When the two announced that they were going to get married, there were some that were a little taken aback by how quickly it was after Heidi's death. Rachel's sister, though, Heidi's best friend, was pleased because of what a sweet man Nick was. They kept the ceremony modest, not wanting to attract attention, and to be respectful of Heidi and her family. Rachel even asked to visit Heidi's grave to pay her respects to Nick's first wife. Rachel and Nick were married in August of 2012 and started a family a few months later. They went on to have three children in total. Holy
1: cow, I'm pretty surprised. So he just goes on and and lives his life.
0: On each anniversary of Heidi's death, police would re-release the sketch that had been drawn of the intruder. In 2015, a woman who happened to see it came forward and identified the man in the picture. It was Michael Pye. He was a known burglar in the area who had a habit of breaking into people's homes in the early morning hours around St. Paul. Police, excited to finally have a lead, looked into Michael immediately, only to have their bubble burst. He had been incarcerated the day that Heidi was killed. There was no way that he could have had anything to do with Heidi's death. But the resemblance between Nick's picture and Michael is uncanny. He is a dead ringer. Did he see his
1: picture at the police station and then described it?
0: Well, Michael's face was all over the news during 2010. And his crimes were explained in detail on media sites everywhere. (gasps) Dirty bugger.
1: So he knew... That this guy breaks into houses early in the morning, so if I do it early in the morning, I can just blame it on him. Exactly. Oh.
0: And then he planted this perfect sketch of him.
1: Yeah, because he didn't have to do it just from memory. He could see it in print and on TV. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. I tell you, Melissa, if this guy is the murderer, he deserves an Academy Award because he put on some good acting for that phone call.
0: I was almost believing him. Well, listening to him on the 911 call, I was getting goosebumps. It sounds very authentic. It does. And I think I can explain that authenticity. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Ooh, This is like a cincher for the police. They know Nick had something to do with Heidi's murder. Yeah, you don't
1: get that dead on.
0: Yeah. They're like, he's trying to cover up. He's trying to throw somebody else under the bus. Yeah. And he's like, oh, this guy's a criminal anyways. It'll just fit but they don't know how to prove it. So the case grew cold and life continued without justice for Heidi. Rachel, Nick's second wife, said of their marriage that it was a warm one filled with love at first. But as time passed, the two started growing apart and started having arguments over little lies that Nick would tell, mostly about their finances. They struggled to make ends meet and Nick was constantly spending and lying about it. Just little stuff like going out for lunch. She would find wrappers in his car and she'd be like, you went out for lunch again? And he'd be like, no, no, somebody else was in the car with me and they ate out. I packed a lunch. I didn't spend any money. Rachel, like Heidi, had agreed that it was Nick's responsibility to handle the finances. But she still paid attention to what was coming in and going out. And so she knew their finances weren't in great shape. And so she tried to keep an eye on the spending a lot more. Right. The math wasn't mathing. The math was not mathing. And any time that she tried to get him to decrease his spending, he would come out and start lying about it. And if they lie about that kind of stuff, they lie about other things. That's exactly where Rachel goes. One day while cleaning, Rachel came across a notice about delinquent property taxes in Nick's sock drawer and learns that their family home is in danger of being foreclosed. She freaks out. She knew that money was tight, but Nick had never said anything about this kind of trouble. And I'm sorry, but hiding something like that is still lying. Oh, it's absolutely lying. Never once had he mentioned it to her. And this triggers her to start having disturbing thoughts about Heidi's death. Rachel would later tell 2020 that, quote, I didn't know this was happening, and I'm living with this person. I have children with this person. And the last time he had problems with finances, a lot of things went wrong. Throughout their marriage, Nick had always been very tight-lipped when it came to talking about Heidi. It was always just too painful. His whole family adopted the attitude that it was just best never to talk about it. Heidi was a taboo subject in their home. But for Rachel, the feeling that Nick had something to do with Heidi's death just would not go away.
1: Oh, that would be so horrible to think of your husband. Mm
0: -hmm. She was terrified. She decides to confront him about it and about their money problems. But before she does that, she actually takes her children out of the house and makes sure they're safe. And then she has somebody else come with her to confront him.
1: Ooh, that really speaks to just how terrified she was and how much she believes he could have been
0: capable of killing his first wife. Mm-hmm. She just could not get this thought out of her head. She actually secretly records her conversation with her husband about his first wife's murder. In one recording, Rachel Furcus said, quote, The fact that you're lying was so easy for you to do in front of me over and over makes me think. And she kind of trails off. And he fills in, quote, that I could murder my wife. When she replied, yes, Nick doesn't respond to her accusation. Ooh. Later, she sits down with him and his parents to discuss their money problems and her suspicions. Nick's parents actually own the house that the family was now living in because Rachel and Nick's credit scores wouldn't qualify them for a mortgage. So they made this arrangement with Nick's parents that they would pay the mortgage amount and then Nick would pay the property taxes directly to the county. And he wasn't even doing that. He wasn't even doing that. Nick's parents deny knowing anything about the current money troubles or the ones in the past that he had with Heidi. And they cannot understand why Rachel would be bringing up Heidi's death and all this trauma again. It's something that's better left in the past. It seems to me like they were just burying their heads in the sand as much as Nick always did. And it makes me wonder if this was a learned trait. Oh, could be. The whole situation is just too much for Rachel. She has always felt that there was something off about Nick's behavior when it came to discussing Heidi, but she had assumed that it was always because it was too traumatic to deal with. That is the excuse she told herself when she noticed that Nick never wanted to talk about finding Heidi's killer or check in with the police to see if there were any new leads. She had always given him the benefit of the doubt. But now that he had pulled the wool over her eyes about their financial situation, she couldn't trust him anymore. She filed for divorce in 2018 and got out of Dodge with her children. Good for her. That's how scared she was. That says a lot because this is the
1: person who's supposed to love you and know you the most. Mm -hmm. And Nick was saying how his grief was almost like feeling homesick. So you would think he would want to keep her memory alive. And revisit. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And of course, he didn't want to go to the police for updates because he doesn't want them looking into it. He wants this to slowly go
0: away. Well, he'll say that he doesn't want to go to the police for updates because he felt like they would start questioning him and accusing him again. I think he just knew if I remind them of this case, they're going to find evidence against me. Mm-hmm. Unlike Nick, though, who never sought for one update about what was being done for Heidi's cold case... Her parents frequently checked in with the St. Paul Police Department. Yeah, because they actually loved her. Mm -hmm. The police department would later say that Heidi's case was never actually cold because they always had an officer assigned to it. It was just one of those cases that didn't sit right with them. And so they continued to work on it. One of these people was Sergeant Nicole Sipes. In 2019, as a new homicide detective, she was assigned to the case. She was well aware of it and was excited to look it over with fresh eyes. She would later say that, quote, this case always bothered me because the circumstances didn't seem to fit what happened. After poring over the case file, she brings in the help of the FBI to analyze the crime scene again, nine years after the crime had been committed. A 3D model is printed of the house interior, and the reconstruction of the crime scene shows that given where Heidi was shot, the trajectory of that shot, if extended back to just inside the front door, would require the shotgun to be near the table inside the door. It was in such close proximity to the table that it would have been pretty much impossible to have any struggle, even the one like Nick described, without bumping into it. Even though he had said that it was not a pushing back and forth fight, he still said that they were moving their arms up and down, and it would have upset the things on the table. So maybe not knock the whole table over, but it would have knocked over something on the table. Yeah, totally would have. Police also determined that the bullet would have been shot on a straight plane at shoulder height, indicating that the shots were most likely deliberate and not accidental.
1: No, because that totally sounds like he's raised up the gun and aimed. Mm-hmm. For it to be on a straight plane... You're holding it up and you're
0: aiming. You're not moving it around. No, it's like target practice. Right. In an effort to try and prove the existence of a third person in the house, Sipes sends the audio tape of Heidi's 911 call off to Quantico to be analyzed by professionals. They pick up zero background noise or evidence of any alleged struggle Nick was having over the shotgun when Heidi was shot while she was still on the phone.
1: Oh, that's true. I didn't even think about the struggle noise. So smart.
0: So smart. What are the chances that you wouldn't hear two grown men fighting over a shotgun in the background of her call? Or that she wouldn't have mentioned it or been a little more panicked about what was going on?
1: Oh, she absolutely would have been. There's a guy trying to get the gun from my husband. He's going
0: to shoot us. It wouldn't have been there's somebody trying to break into our house. The report would have been there's somebody in our house fighting with my husband. Exactly. In Nick's later call to 911... Police can be heard entering in the background, so it's clear that the call would have picked up the background noises from the front door. Right. Oh, so, so smart. So smart. In the hunt to establish the motive, though, Sipes revisits old witnesses and adds a few more, one of them being Rachel, Nick's now ex-wife. When Sipes interviews Rachel, a clear pattern and motive begins to finally take shape. Using the information that Nick had lied to Rachel about their finances, Sipe sets about proving that he had lied to Heidi as well. Everyone had always just taken his word that Heidi had known everything and that they had been partners in deciding what to do about their financial future. As Sipes digs into the couple's financial records, it becomes clear that absolutely no one knew of their financial troubles. Friends that had visited days before the murder and even on the day of the murder said that there was no indication that the couple were moving the following day. There were some alarmed emails that they found from Heidi to Nick about her getting calls from creditors, but Nick assured her that the financial issues were due to fraud on their account and that it was all being investigated. He claimed that the teller at the bank was stealing his paychecks, but it was all being sorted out. Of course, there was no investigation being conducted, and a later audit of their account would show that there wasn't any fraud related to their accounts. But it was the story that Nick would use on several people if they did find out about the money troubles that they were having. So there was an insurance broker that called him to see what was going on when they defaulted on some of their payments. And he said, Oh, there's been some fraud on our account. The teller's stealing my paychecks and we're sorting it all out. Whoa, that is so
1: cunning it's huh.
0: masterful manipulation
1: totally he just seems to have an answer for
0: everything Mm-hmm. those who knew heidi said that they were shocked to have learned that she had kept all of her financial problems from them remember this is after her death and all of this information comes out to the public that they had all of these problems they were being evicted it all comes out in the media and everyone's shocked that heidi wouldn't talk to them about it it was out of character for her investigators spoke with heidi's family friends and co-workers And not one person said that Heidi had ever said anything about foreclosure, eviction, or needing a place to stay or store their belongings.
1: That would also explain, if she had no idea about it, why she was continuing to spend. Exactly. Like, yeah, let's do the carpet. Let's go shopping. Let's buy all these closet organizers. Let me
0: plan a trip to Hawaii. Right. As Sipes digs into Heidi's actions, it became clear that she had no idea that they were struggling as much as they were or that they had even lost their home. She just believes the lies that her dirtbag husband was feeding her. So that's why Heidi continued to spend money. But she wasn't the only one. Review of credit card history showed that Nick made over twice the amount of purchases that Heidi did. And prior to marrying Nick, Heidi had always paid her bills on time. So she would have been able to pare back her spending had he just told her they were a little bit strapped for cash. Right. But he had to perpetuate this image that he was providing everything that she needed, the life that she wanted.
1: Right. So she was totally capable on her own, but then because of their more traditional values when they got married, she was happy to let him take that over, mm-hmm. having no idea the mess he had made.
0: That's right. And he couldn't fess up to it. Despite Nick's lies to the police during his one and only interview that Heidi had taken only 30 or $40 cash to the mall on Saturday, Heidi had actually spent over $200 that day. And she didn't appear the least bit concerned about money to the friends that she was with. And he made up this lie because the investigating officer asks him, why would she go shopping if you guys knew you were being evicted the next day?
1: Yeah, why do you want to even
0: move more stuff? That's right. And he's (laughs) like, well, you know, she wanted to hang out with her friend and she had only taken this amount of cash because that's how we were monitoring our funds. We weren't using credit cards anymore, trying to make everything better. And so this is how he's trying to explain it during the interview. And it actually comes off when you listen to it. You're like, oh, yeah. If that's what she had actually done, okay, I can understand that or I can see that. Wow. Heidi had told her mom that Nick had received a bonus at work and that's why they could go to Hawaii when her mom asked about it. So he totally had the wool pulled over her eyes. Mm -hmm. On March 11th, 2010, Heidi sent an email to a friend saying, wish we weren't tied down to our house so then we could move somewhere fun. And this is when they have been evicted.
1: So I'm assuming he's putting those thoughts in her mind.
0: He could have been. Shortly after this, she told her mom that they were house hunting for a smaller house to save money so that they could then buy a bigger one that was better suited for their future children. Through a message, Heidi asked Nick to set up a meeting with a real estate agent to sell their home. All of this is super telling about Heidi's knowledge of the situation because at this time, they no longer owned a home. It had already been auctioned off. Oh, so this proves she had no idea. I think it does. Nick lied and told Heidi that he had set up this meeting for Monday, the 26th. The real estate agent that Nick said he set the appointment up with hadn't spoken to Nick in over a year and had no knowledge of this meeting. Oh, what a web we weave. Mm -hmm. Police could find no written communication between the couple that mentioned the foreclosure or moving. Heidi had never signed any of the documentation for the foreclosure and had never appeared in court with Nick at any of the multiple eviction proceedings. It was also clear from the plans that Heidi had made the days leading up to her death that she had no intentions of moving on Monday the 26th. She hadn't even taken the day off work. She had even planned to go out for lunch and for a pedicure on the Sunday afternoon. No way. A time that you think you would have been consumed with packing. Yeah, absolutely you would. On May 21st, 2021, a press conference was held to announce that charges had finally been laid for Heidi's homicide. Nick was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. He was later released on a $1 million bail to await trial. He also had to turn in his passport just in case he got the idea about fleeing the country. And how come second-degree? Because they can't prove at this time that it was premeditated. He got to spend almost two more years as a free man until his trial started on January 27th. 2023. This just happened. Mm -hmm. The trial lasted 11 days with the prosecution laying out the case of Nick's dirtbaggery. They argued that Nick killed his wife because he was about to be exposed as a fraud and that he was compelled to save his own reputation. They had an experienced forensic locksmith testify that the deadbolt had not been tampered with and that the marks made on the lower lock were not consistent with a break-in. It just looked like somebody was trying to do damage to it. They presented a multitude of evidence that showed his lying nature when it came to the couple's finances, and the lack of evidence that we talked about about the intruder. The defense argued that there was no way Heidi had not known about their financial trouble. There were many collection notices that were received, and there were documents found all over the house in file folders and just laying out in plain sight on the couch when the police did their investigation.
1: Yeah, he threw them all over the place.
0: He did, after the fact. Oh. They argued that logically, there was not enough time between 911 calls for Nick to shoot himself and then get to Heidi 14 feet away and pick up Heidi's phone to make the second 911 call. They also tried to say that Nick would have had to use this same time to create the scratch marks on the door they found on the lower lock during the same time period. They made it sound as complicated of a process as they could, allowing them to draw the conclusion that there must have been someone else present.
1: He could have made those marks before he came to bed.
0: She went to bed well before him. Absolutely. And he had been out of bed earlier that morning. He said he got up to get a drink. Maybe he did it then. The prosecution actually rebutted this defense's argument by setting a timer, pretending to shoot themselves, walking the 14 feet. There, I did it. Yeah, it doesn't take over 20 seconds to shoot yourself. No, especially when you've made that decision ahead of time that this is what has to go down.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like he knew exactly where to shoot himself, too, so that he wouldn't hit an artery
0: or get very injured. Mm -hmm. The defense argued, though, that Nick loved Heidi just too much to ever do anything like this. They said, quote, The bottom line is this. Nick Ferkus had no reason to kill his wife. He did everything he could to save her. Her death was the tragedy of his life. You don't kill the love of your life to spare yourself some embarrassment. Which is true, if you're not a dirtbag, you don't do those things. Right. They made this really big deal about if he was trying to save himself from the embarrassment of people finding out about his financial issues, they were splattered all over the media. It would have been easier just to tell his family and friends, hey, we need a place to stay. We've been evicted. Right. And so that really didn't save him any embarrassment. All of his dirty laundry was aired out. But the only difference is, is Heidi never found out. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I'm not 100% convinced that the prosecution's full argument for motive is the correct one. Because I feel the truth for the motive falls somewhere between the defense and the prosecution. The prosecution team, along with a lot of others, make the argument that Nick's motives were grounded in wanting to hide his financial failures from the world and stop himself from being exposed. But I feel it had more to do with the overwhelming shame he felt for not providing for Heidi. He would rather kill her than let her know that he had been a failure.
1: So what? He was just too much of a coward to say to her, like, hey, we got to move out tomorrow. So he decided, I'm just going to kill you instead?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Because of shame.
1: No way. Yeah. Get out. His ego was so massive that
0: he couldn't handle it. Not necessarily so much of his ego as his shame that he had to hide it from her. And that's why it does sound like he actually did love her. But to the point where he just couldn't have her view him as anything less than a protector and I'm going to take care of you. And so he shot her in the back. He couldn't even face her. That is so
1: warped. It is. I love you so much that I can't let you believe. That her. I would let you down. Yeah. Hmm. I don't think we've ever had that motive on a case that we've
0: covered before. Well, I think we have because it's often family annihilators that do that. Oh, yeah, that's true. John List. That's Exactly. And then he just goes on and leaves his second life. Yeah, because he lost his job and didn't want to tell anyone. And he hid it, right? He went yeah. to work and that's what this guy's doing. He's going out buying camping gear because nothing's wrong. He's encouraging his wife to book vacations to Hawaii because there's nothing wrong. I'm just burying my head in the sand. Oh, that's true. So then you can have both arguments still be true. Yes, he absolutely loved her, but then couldn't handle her knowing his shame of not being able to provide for her. That's why he hid it so long from her. Yeah, so in this case, it definitely could be both. Mm -hmm. I believe that this is why he kept up the facade with Heidi, and everyone else was just an extension of that role play. Nick's identity revolved around being Heidi's husband and her provider. There were many that testified that he worshipped her and wanted her to have everything. When he couldn't keep up with the act anymore, his shame motivated him to do the unthinkable. There is a lot of research on shame that points to this. Dr. James Gilligan and Alice Miller suggest that, quote, the basic psychological motive or cause for violent behavior is the wish to ward off or eliminate the feeling of shame and humiliation. A feeling that is painful and can even be intolerable and overwhelming and replace it with the opposite feeling of pride. This pride convinces a person they alone can remedy their shame through violence. Oh, I can see that totally. Mm -hmm. Being shot in the back. Heidi died, most likely never knowing any of Nick's lies, keeping his shame hidden from her, who was the most important person in his life.
1: Yeah, I get that. But at the same time, he's basically, oh, I loved her to death, quite literally. Oh, it is not rational thinking. It's not. I'm sorry, you love yourself more because you couldn't deal with your own shame. And you love how you want to feel more than you value your wife's life. Mm hmm so I don't buy it. Sorry, return to sender. So do you think she screamed out because we could hear her scream on that call? Did she scream because of the pain that she was hit? Or do you think she actually saw him with the gun, scream, turn to run, and then was hit? No, the shot comes first. She never knew it was coming. Wow. It's just such a warped way of thinking for murderers who do this. Because if you asked her, what do you care about more, being alive or getting a new pair of shoes that I can't afford for you?
0: I think if you would ask asked her even, what do you care more about, the new pair of shoes or your husband? Yeah. She would have chosen her husband. I think she was such a loving and accepting individual that had he just come to her and said, hey, I've messed up, she would have been, okay, we'll figure this out. Right. And they had such a loving support team around them with both of their families, all of their friends. He could have went anywhere for help.
1: Exactly. And they were still young. They had time to get out of this. And it wasn't like they were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. If you look at the grand scheme of things, they could have recovered from this.
0: And it wasn't like at the time, it wasn't something that wasn't happening to other people. This was during the recession in the United States, where a lot of people were losing their homes to foreclosure because they couldn't handle their mortgages. Right. And so they weren't the only ones in this situation. People, I think, would have understood. Yeah. But Nick couldn't see that. During the trial, the jury heard Nick's statement that in his car that weekend, he had an industrial cleaner from his work that was used to remove bloodstains. You never know when you're going to need one of those, right? <laughs> I don't know what he was doing. He did work for a company that did clean up. Right. But he had this in his personal car. Well, I keep one in my pantry all the time, Melissa. hmm the jury was also presented with one of the last emails that was ever exchanged between the couple. On Friday, April 23rd, the Friday before she was murdered, Heidi discussed in an email plans to go out with her friends. And Nick replied by saying, quote, oh, I'm OK with that as long as I can have you all to myself tomorrow night. Clearly, Nick had plans for Heidi.
1: Yeah, he wanted to make sure he could get just one last beautiful
0: day with her. And the jury believed that, too. They found him guilty of second-degree murder and first-degree murder. Both? Both. It's always both. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What? Yeah. I think that's the first time I've ever seen that happen in a single murder. But they found him guilty of both. He carries both charges.
1: That's amazing. That actually makes me so happy.
0: (laughs) I thought you would be happy with that one.
1: Yeah, because too many times they get off. And really, he did get off at the beginning. Look how many years it took for him to finally get convicted. So I'm glad that he got his just comeuppance.
0: It was 13 years that he got to live out of jail.
1: He got to have a whole nother life, another wife, three children.
0: Mm -hmm. On April 13th, during his sentencing hearing at the Ramsey courtroom, Nick faced Heidi's family and friends that spoke of their loss, hurt, and anger that his actions had caused them. Heidi's brother, Peter Erickson, said, quote, The fact that he had the audacity to peddle a story that was so obviously inconsistent with Heidi's character was and still is very much insulting and offensive to me and everyone else who actually knew and loved her. It's true. Because he told this whole story about how they both had gotten into so much debt and she wanted to hide it from everybody. And he changed who she was to those people because they thought, oh, she didn't even tell us things. Right. He drug her through the mud with him. Mm hmm. After hearing their pain, Nick addressed the court for the first time. He said, quote, I recognize the pain and loss shared by everyone else here today. It is a pain and loss that I have felt for every day for the past 13 years and continue to carry with me today. While I understand the jury's verdict and the sentence you must give, I do maintain and will maintain until my dying breath my innocence of this crime. What? Mm hmm. After his statement, he was sentenced to life in prison without the probability of parole and was fined $10,000. After the sentencing, Nick's family refused to be interviewed but gave this statement. Quote, he was wrongfully convicted and sits in jail for a crime he did not commit. This is not just the belief of heartbroken parents. Nick is currently imprisoned in the Minnesota Correctional Facility in Rush City, where he continues to proclaim his innocence and I'm sure is readying an appeal to be filed. And that is the case of the lying, free-spending dirtbag Nicholas James Ferkus that betrayed the love of his life by shooting her in the back, all because he couldn't bear the shame of letting her down.
1: Wow. This is so fresh, too. We are going to have to keep tabs on this case if he gets any appeals, if he ends up getting paroled. This is wild to me. But I think even just with his second wife, Rachel, if she's living with this man and
0: believes that he could do it, that says a lot. Oh, absolutely. That she believed that enough that she ran. Right. And she attended every day of the trial and was okay testifying against him. Because she felt like Heidi needed a voice. And so she was going to be that voice on explaining how somebody could pull the wool over your eyes and not know about your own finances.
1: Right. Not that someone's belief makes you guilty or not, but it definitely is telling. And I was so shocked when you read that last statement of his that he said, I'm innocent. I thought he was talking about, oh, every day I've had to live with the guilt of what I've done.
0: No, he's talking about living life without her.
1: Right. But it makes sense because if he's willing to murder the love of his life just to save face, there's no way he's going to admit to it ever.
0: No, he's never coming clean,
1: which makes him that much more of a dirtbag. And honestly, him shooting her in the back so she couldn't even see it coming just speaks to what a coward he is.
0: Absolutely. And whether he thinks it or not, he absolutely did let Heidi down. But if we haven't let you down by telling our case story today... Please go to wherever you're listening and give us a rating and a review.
1: Those five stars really help us out.
0: And we'll be back again next week when Christy has another dirtbag to talk about. But until then, see ya. Bye.
1: chin hit the thing because it's right in my face (laughs) it's right in my face
0: (laughs) can you hear that track listeners is that all right i hate this starting that's what i say let's just get into it
1: we can't just be like
0: (laughs) no the night was october
1: 23rd (laughs) 1822
0: (laughs) watch me (laughs) i won't let you that's like (laughs) she has this stuff that we called small talk that she wants to do all the time and i'm like just tell me the details it's like like seeing someone you know at the mall i'm just walking
1: right up to them right on their face i went to the bank today and blah blah blah, blah. i'm not like hey how you doing that's not socially okay you like get away from me you weirdo
0: Well, that's how I feel sometimes, We have to
1: respect the bubble. (laughs) You have to say hello.
0: I did say hello. Now let's move on. (laughs) Today.
1: Oh, Oh, you have something. No, I don't.
0: Actually, you got something. You go with it. (laughs) Both Nighty and Lick. That can be their... (laughs) That's their couple name, (laughs) Nighty. What What do I want to say here, Christy? (laughs) It was another one that might have had me sitting on the fence for... A small amount of time.
1: Come on. (laughs) I just think it's so endearing, Melissa, that you want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) You would think he'd go down the stairs. Okay, I have it on do not disturb. Something (laughs) is wrong with my phone.
0: This is my brain, Christy. Isn't it awesome?
1: (laughs) I love your brain. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts.
0: Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents?
1: We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye.